listening to the CIPD podcast series. The Wall Street Journal recently ranked Gary Hamill as the world's most influential business thinker. And when he published his latest book, The Future of Management, Amazon rated it as the best business book of the entire year. An American living in Northern California, Professor Hamill is visiting professor of strategic and international management at London Business School. His work as a consultant has taken him into companies as diverse as General Electric, Time Warner, Nokia, Nestle, Shell, Procter & Gamble, IBM, Microsoft and many, many more. Governments turn to him when they're grappling with tough challenges such as innovation policy, entrepreneurship and industrial competitiveness. And his latest project is to build the world's first management lab. The M-Lab, as it's known, is sponsored by the CIPD and it brings together progressive companies and world-class academics. And it set itself a fascinating remit to speed up the evolution of management knowledge and practice. Professor Hamill, most of us work in organisations still where executives who are hopefully well-informed and capable tell junior executives what to do and when and how to do it. You don't think that really works anymore, do you? Why not? Well, I think it is working less and less well, and I think the primary reason is that change is accelerating. You know, I mean, the signal reality of our age is we live in a world of discontinuity, where change is becoming more seditious, faster-paced, it's unexpected, and the reality is is that most organizations are not as adaptable as they need to be. And if, you know, you look back and you say, why does it so often take a crisis to change a large organization, and it usually does, and it almost always takes a change in leadership as well? In most of our organizations, the responsibility for creating strategy and direction is still highly concentrated in a few people at the top. So effectively, those individuals can hold the entire organization's capacity to change hostage to their own personal willingness to adapt and to change. And since many of those people have most of their emotional equity invested in the past, in decisions, in business models, and so on that may be a decade or or more old, it's often very hard for them to admit for the need to change because doing so forces them to write off their own depreciating intellectual capital. And that's a painful thing for anybody to do. So one of the things you know, social scientists uh, understand is that the more concentrated political power in any system, the less resilient that system is going to be. It's why that despite the current uh, crisis over the last several hundred years, democracies have always outperformed totalitarian systems. There are fewer famines, fewer financial crises, less cataclysmic change, and yet our organizations are still put together mostly like the Soviet Union circa 1970. So I think we could, we could live with the cost of that in a world where change was better behaved, but we can't live with it today. As you say, most organizations are still managed in that, in that rather antediluvian way, but Within this global recession, we're seeing some of them are flourishing markedly better than others. Clearly, there are lots of reasons for that. But in terms of leadership, what do you think they're doing that's distinguishing them from their rivals? Well, right now, obviously, the companies that are going to do best in this crisis are ones that have a strong balance sheet, have good cash flow, probably companies that already have a rock-bottom cost structure. And so they're the ones that uh, can can make products and services that customers can actually uh, afford. Um, And so, you know, this kind of a crisis tends to wash out the inefficient firms. It's kind of has this purging effect, which in a way is is good every once in a while, although certainly this is, is, is worse than we would have hoped for. But I think you have to separate out what is a cyclical event, a deep recession, 
from these longer-term secular trends, increasing uh, pace of change, uh, growing competitive intensity, hyper-competition if you want, which is going to put a much greater premium on innovation, and the fact that knowledge itself is becoming a commodity and increasingly in, in what will less and less be a knowledge economy and be a creative economy, we're going to have to find ways to get our employees to bring their creativity to their passion to work every day. So I think the companies that do well over the next few months, the next few years, are going to have a very important set of skills, but those may not be the same skills that will see them through uh, beyond this crisis. For that, we need or organizations that are fundamentally more adaptable, more innovative, and more engaging places to work than they are right now. Some companies, I think, are already moving in that direction. Most have a long ways to go. Well, on that theme, I know that last year you held what sounded like a really fascinating event at Half Moon Bay in California, and you brought together business leaders and academics to talk about reinventing management for the 21st century. Now, I know you came to the conclusion there, along with many other conclusions, that organizations are not human enough to allow the human beings who work for them to flourish. Don't tell me a bit more about that. Yeah, you know, one of the arguments or one of the premises we had going into that event was that organizations are going to have to become much more adaptable as change accelerates, much more innovative as a competitive environment heats up, and then much more engaging places to work if you really want to get employees to bring their creativity and their passion and their initiative to work. And if you think about it, human beings already have all those capabilities. They're amazingly adaptable. I'm sure people listening right now, some of them have had to change careers midway through their life. They've had to deal with family tragedies. Some have moved across uh, oceans. So human beings are extremely adaptable. We're amazingly innovative, as the web is making more and more obvious every day. Given the chance, we will write blogs, and we will do mashups, and we will you know, do podcasts and all the rest. And of course, people are just uh, amazingly interesting. It's why we you know, love to watch reality television. It's why, as human beings, we love stories. But yet, somehow, our, our organizations are less adaptable, less innovative, and less engaging and inspiring than the people who work there. And so in that sense, yeah, they're not as human as they need to be. So that was one of the big themes of this conference. And of, and of course, the, the reason is, if you go back and look at the invention of management 100 years ago, Management was invented to solve one very specific problem, and that was how do you get human beings to do the same things over and over again with perfect replicability and ever-increasing efficiency. And in that model, human beings are semi-programmable robots. And, you know, that was, that was an interesting problem to solve. It was an amazingly valuable problem to solve. It's just not one that's very valuable anymore. And so in that sense, you know, those early management pioneers were, were very much working against the grain of what it means to be human. And those of us who care about reinventing management, we're quite lucky because we're working with the grain of what it means to be human. We want our organizations to be more human-like and less machine-like. I mean, what you say is evidently true, but I think the difficulty lies, as one of the academics in, in the audience at that event pointed out, the difficulty lies in bridging the gap between theory and practice, doesn't it? Because I think you know, Eric Schmidt, the CEO of Google, spoke at that seminar. He said what you would expect him to say, that um, people want to be empowered, but that most organizations don't allow that. But you know, as we know, Google is utterly atypical as an organization in terms of its employee profile, what it does. For more traditional organizations, how do they draw on those lessons you're talking about and introduce them without actually shredding their entire philosophy? No, I think that's a really great question because so often these companies that we hold up as examples of kind of management 2.0, they're young companies, they started with a clean sheet of paper, their management models are even more differentiated than their business models. But if you're in a company that's been around for a few decades and has kind of bog standard management practices, 
it's a very daunting kind of a problem. And, uh, you know, I would never give somebody the advice that you, you just, you know, rip, rip up what's there and start all over again. It's simply not practical. So the really interesting question, I think, in organizations today is we know in our hearts that we need revolutionary change in how we manage, lead, organize, and structure. And yet we have to find a way of doing this that is evolutionary in practice. So revolutionary goals, evolutionary steps. And the good news, in a way, is that human beings have actually learned how to solve that paradox, and we call it experimentation. I think in management, you know, people in, in human resources, people in finance, in strategic planning, in organizations, they don't think like experimenters. They don't start with some big, bold new principle, like how do you dramatically in, increase the level of trust in an organization? How do you dramatically improve or enlarge the freedoms that people have to experiment? Um, and then how do you do a, something small, a little experiment that moves you in that direction? And instead we think, you know, every five or ten years we'll take some core management process, we do a complete rethink, redesign it, probably a big risk in doing that, or more likely, we just increment our way year after year with tiny little tweaks, you know, to management as usual. So I think in anyone who has responsibility for one of these key management processes, they need to think about how do I become as experimental it, with that process as the people in R&D are or the people in new product development are where I need to be building a portfolio of small experiments in how we compensate, how we measure performance, how we do appraisals, constantly trying new things. The ones that work, I scale up. The ones that don't, you know, we, we leave by the wayside. And, and I think as managers, we're very uncomfortable with the word experiment because what, what we'd much rather say is we're doing a prototype or we're doing a pilot. Because the message there is, I've figured 90% of this out, and we'll do a little fine-tuning at the edges. If you say I'm going to do an experiment, you're admitting ignorance, that anything could really happen. We're just going to try something. But I think we're going to need that mentality. Because the difficulty is that I think even if people want to come forward with ideas from departments that perhaps aren't generally thought of as ideas departments, those ideas are often killed, aren't they, by the one person above them, their manager, who says, actually, no, I don't like it. And that's the end of it. So, so it's, a, it's, a, it's a very difficult process for those ideas that actually may lie within an organization to come forward and flourish, isn't it? It is, it is difficult. And I think you know, anyone who's kind of a management activist, if you like, in an organization uh, has to learn about the principles of activism. You know, there, there, there is a way, uh, and it's not a secret, I mean, there are all kinds of books that have been written about this, about how a lone individual with very limited formal power in an organization can get things done. And typically, the, the first principle is don't start by trying to sell your idea upwards. Start by trying to sell it horizontally. If you can get 10 or 15 or 20 of your peers to say this is a great idea, makes sense, you have a lot more organizational clout than if you go in kind of metaphorically naked and say this is my idea. I mean, you know, senior executives find it very easy to say no to individuals. And, and often rightly so, because you know, the odds are that most ideas are not great ideas. So you kind of say no, go away. But they find it much more difficult to do that when you bring a coalition together. I think that the second principle there is you have to find a way of experimenting with an idea in a, in a way where you don't need very many permissions to get started. You know, one of the uh, little experiments I talk about in my, my last book was uh, a middle-level executive in a large consumer electronics retailer who was, who was um, distressed at the company's forecasting system and how wide of the mark they often were when forecasting kind of Christmas uh, end-of-the-year sales, a very critical thing in that industry. And so did his own little wisdom of the crowds experiment in that company with nobody's permission. The only incentive he offered for people to throw in their, their uh, forecast for future revenues was a $100 gift card for the best uh, guess. 
and they found out the first time they did this that the kind of the mass of several hundred people making this forecast were 99% right when the experts on average had only been 90% right. And that simple little experiment, again, was done in a couple of hours, cost almost nothing, needed nobody's permission because you weren't disrupting anything that was already there, you were just trying something different. So we have to think in that way, how, how do I build a coalition? How do I find ways of experimenting that don't require uh, a lot of approvals or permissions, but where we have the chance to learn something that will be very impactful? Google, of course, say that the shared vision is everything, uh, and that, that this is the root of, of releasing this creativity and innovative spirit we've talked about, and that leaders need to be taught to listen. Is that the key? Well, I do think that innovation of any sort starts with an aspiration. Uh, you can't have innovation unless you have a dream and unless you're willing to kind of try things that other people would say are a little bit stupid. For Google, that's how do you raise the world's IQ, how do you connect people with information around the world. And I think, you know, one of the kind of sorry things for a lot of those, a, lo a lot of us who've worked in management all of our lives, either in companies or in academia, is that, that we, we aren't romantics at heart, right? We don't start with this sense of what could be, how could our organizations be different? You know, the first question when, when often you present a new idea to a manager is, who else has done it, right? Show me the best practice guide, show me the rules. Well, you know, that's not bad. Sure, let's learn from what's already there. But that's a question that followers ask. That's not a question that leaders ask. And, you know, I think of, and I, I think this is where we are today with management, you know, I think of, you know, Bono trying to get, you know, governments around the world to take poverty in Africa seriously. Or you look at Nick Negroponte trying to, you know, one laptop per child and close the digital divide. Or people that are, that are struggling to uh, reduce modern slavery. And my question is, what is our equivalent as managers? What are these big new challenges like dramatically improving the level of trust? like depoliticizing decision-making? What are these big innovation challenges that we should be working on? Because I think Google understands that to release human creativity when people are working on something that is fundamentally exciting, fundamentally worthwhile, and has no easy and apparent answers. You're listening to the CIPD podcast series. There's a mismatch that makes your suggestion difficult for organizations, isn't there, which is that they are by nature, almost all of them nowadays, short-term in their thinking. And what you're talking about demands a much longer perspective. Well, I'm not sure it always demands a longer perspective temporally, a longer time horizon. It does demand more ambition. You know, I'm not sure that all these problems are going to take 20 or 30 years to solve. Sometimes they simply take a new way of thinking. You know, there's a, a lovely little company that I've gotten to know in, in Brazil that has really taken this idea of treating individuals like adults very seriously. They've done a number of things, but one of the simple things they did was they blew up all of the internal travel expense controls. And in most companies, they have really quite tight controls now more than ever. You often have to go up a level or two to get permission to you know, take a trip. And then there's a whole set of rules about where you stay and where you, how you fly and so on. They just blew all of that up in, in one go and said, when you, anybody who needs to travel on business, do it. When you come back, you can stay in. Or when you travel, any hotel, any airline, spend what you want, and we'll just automatically pay it when, when you come back. Well, if you gave that recommendation to the average finance director, you know, they'd, they'd have a heart attack. What makes it work in that organization is they're organized into relatively small profit centers, 30 to 40 people in a profit center. Uh, half of their compensation depends on profitability. So when you come back from your trip, they'll pay whatever you said it costs. You still have to give receipts so they can you know, look at that. But then they take that expense report and they publish it online for all your peers to see. 
So there is accountability. There's accountability, but it's to your peers, and it's much more efficient. That transparency is much more efficient as a control mechanism than a lot of one-size-fits-all policies. Now, you know, to change that doesn't need five years. It's not some huge effort. It was a simple idea. Instead of having the bureaucracy, let's have transparency. So I think a lot of these changes, and, and the ones I, I described in terms of forecasting, they're not things that are so difficult to do that are going to take forever. They just require a new way of thinking. And critically, and I think this is the hard part, they require a lot of managers to give up some of their traditional prerogatives. Because if you think about it historically, you know, what managers did was control. And in fact, in most languages, if you look at the synonym for the word manage, the synonym is control. Well, we still need control. Control, discipline, alignment. These are very, very important, but we have to find a way of getting those things that doesn't sacrifice imagination, creativity, uh, and so on. And that seems to me where the innovation is required. And I think, you know, the difficulty that most middle managers would, would point to is that their, the expectation of their seniors is that they should not fail. So that's, that's very difficult for them, isn't it, to experiment within that philosophy? Because, you know, if they fail, if they fail to hit their short-term, very short-term goals, if they make mistakes that cost the company money, then they are deemed to have failed across the board. So for them to be brave, that, that's tough, isn't it? No, I think it is, it is often tough. Um, but again, I think in general, companies are starting to understand the fact that you can't innovate in any sphere, products, services, business models, management, you can't experiment without a certain number of failures. There's, there's, there's an inescapable arithmetic in innovation. I need a thousand wacky ideas to find a hundred things worth experimenting with, to find ten things that can really make a difference, to find one thing that in the end will transform my management systems, my business model, and so on. And so I think people more and more understand that a certain level of failure is the is, is just an unavoidable price for adaptability, for successful innovation, and so on. The, the, the challenge, of course, is keeping those failures small and cheap. And it's what Google is very good at. You know, you throw something up on the web, you see if anybody comes. If it doesn't, the project, you know, dies then and there. So I, I think that is getting across. And I think organizations, their tolerance for small, successful failures, meaning something where we, we learn something. It wasn't a stupid failure. We learned something and so on. I think that tolerance is going up. Um, I think, though, in a sense, the bigger challenge is that we have to become more comfortable with paradox. You know, really, management is all about the tensions in an organization, long-term, short-term, discipline, freedom, uh, efficiency, innovation. And a lot of times, I think, the, you know, while all those middle managers may complain that somebody else is holding them accountable just to the short-term, I think a lot of it is often we don't want to have the responsibility of thinking. Right? And of actually saying, right now, I have to decide, do I put today's effort, do I put my feet up on the desk and think about a new product, a new service, do I innovate, or do I get out there and I try to sell something, I try to take some more cost out? It's much easier us, uh, for us in a way if somebody else is making those decisions and then just telling us, you know, right now we just want you to focus on cost or we just want you to focus on innovation. But we have to take the responsibility for managing that paradox moment by moment and, and, and for defending the choices we make in doing so. And I, and I would say, you know, the good news there is human beings are very capable of managing paradox when you give them the chance. Uh, you think about parents, you know, as a parent, the fundamental paradox with your children is love and discipline. And nobody ever has to tell you, today is a love day, right? Or for the next quarter, we're just going to focus on discipline, then we'll get to that love <laughs> thing by and by. You know, you put the kid in a corner, you give them a timeout, and you give them a hug simultaneously, right? 
And so I think we often underestimate the ability of human beings at all levels and organizations. If you give them the right information, they understand the pressures on the organization, we can let them make the trade-offs, short-term, long-term, efficiency, innovation. We don't have to make those for them globally. We can trust them to make them themselves locally. The other difficulty here is, is that this is all happening so much faster, isn't it? I know you're very preoccupied with this concept of speed, the speed with which we need to absorb new knowledge as individuals, the speed with which organisations have to catch up with new ideas. This is all getting faster and faster. Well, it, it is. And, uh, you know, if you think about it, change has been accelerating for about 13 billion years, but the pace of change has gone hypercritical in our lifetime. Indeed. Uh, the number of things, literally, that are now changing at an exponential pace, CO2 emissions, uh, broadband connections, um, uh, computer processing power, uh, world population, number of genes sequenced. You go back 150 years, there was nothing that was changing on a sustained basis at an exponential pace. So literally, this is, you know, we, we are both the authors and the victims of accelerated change, right? We're making it happen, given the new technologies and so on but also as individuals and then in our organizational lives, we're trying to figure out how we cope with all of this. And it's, it's extraordinarily uh, stressful, but I think what it, what it will force every individual, every organization, every society to really start to think about is, how do we become capable of changing as fast as the environment around us? And that, if nothing else, is going to require a profound transformation in how we think about organizations. because. The fundamental assumption in most companies is we have a business model that will last forever. And we know that's not true. It's not true in music. It's not true in the pharmaceutical industry. It's not true in the newspaper industry. And yet our organizational practices haven't caught up with that new reality. So you know, the good news in a sense is every organization out there is struggling with the same problem. And just as you know, if you look back in the early years of the 20th century, the companies that figured out mass manufacturing, you know, companies like Ford and General Motors and others, it set them up for a century of leadership. I think the companies, the organizations that figure out how do you compete in this new environment, how do you become more adaptable, how do you get innovation out of every single person every day, these are the companies that are gonna be set up for, for a lot of success a long time into the future. But you know, we don't know exactly how that model is going to sort itself out, but we know enough now to, to get started. I mean, here's, here's a little example. You know, you look at how the web has democratized innovation. One of my questions today is, so you have some management processes that you know are getting in the way of your company's capacity to change and adapt. So let's document that process. Let's put it up online. Here's how we do employee appraisals. Here's how we do our capital budgeting. Here's how we do strategic planning. Put those up online. These are the people that get involved. This is the milestones, the time frame. These are decision tools we use and ask people across an entire company, all right, if we wanted to become more adaptable, what would you change in that process? I believe that we have to give every single employee the right to hack the management systems in a company. Not, not in a destructive way, right? I mean, good hacking, like people building, you know, an open source building Linux, but everyone deserves to have the ability to influence and have, have a voice in shaping the evolutions of the processes that manage their everyday work lives. And right now, we're leaving that work to the experts. And the experts, HR foremost among them, most of them are still stuck in the old models. And, and I think you know, this, this innovation and management is way too important to be left to the experts. It's gonna to have to be kind of an open source project where people all across the company have the chance to hack these, to talk about how these should change if you really want companies that are more adaptable and more innovative. And in your experience, do rank and file ordinary workers actually want to engage with that process? And I'm not talking about organizations like Google where everyone is hyper self-motivated. I'm talking about real ordinary organizations. Do they really want to do that? Or are they just in that mindset where it's a job. It's short term. They just earn the money, go home. 
you know, there's some that are for sure in that category, but you know, you go into any organization, there are a lot of people there who are frustrated. We know that from all the research data. You know, we know that on, on average across the developed world, less than 20% of people are highly engaged in their work. We know the millions of people every day who are reading Dilbert and finding it like funny and also painful, right? I mean, you wouldn't laugh if you didn't care and if you didn't find it so painful. And in a way, you know, our goal, what we're trying to do at the Management Lab, the, the measure of success would be that a generation hence, people can't remember why Dilbert was funny, right? It'd be like looking at some Victorian cartoon that seems completely out of context and what, what do people find so humorous That's about that? That's a very that. high aspiration. It's a high aspiration, but as I said, if you don't start with a high aspiration, you won't make even <laughs> modest progress. So I think there are people in organizations and, and who have, who've had nowhere to go with those frustrations. And I think when you, I mean, we learned this some years ago when we started democratizing the process for strategy creation in organizations. Um, you know, now a couple of times IBM has, 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 has hosted a global innovation jam where they've kind of invited all of their employees, business partners, to help IBM think about its future strategy. That was a very radical idea, that you would kind of outsource your strategy process. I think in a similar way we're going to have to not exactly outsource, we're certainly going to have to open source the process by which we redesign our management systems. And I think people will be even more interested in doing that than in contributing to strategy because that's what gets in their way every day of doing the job they'd like to do. It does strike me that all the ideas we've been talking about are much, much easier to introduce in small organizations, particularly startups, as, as you said. But how do SMEs and large organizations do this stuff? You know, I think that's probably the, the right, uh, that, that's, a, that's a correct observation. Um, you know, having said that, there are a lot of small organizations that get stuck with an initial business model, are never able to change it, and, you know, never grow into big organizations. But definitely size is a barrier here. So how do, how do you deal with that? Well, first of all, I think many organizations, um, if not the company itself, the units in the organization are too big. You know, when you have a company that's made up of a few enormous divisions, within those units you tend to find a kind of intellectual hegemony, right? There's one way of thinking, you know, one business model and so on. And I think what we're going to see over the next few years is every company is going to have to learn how to divide itself into smaller pieces. Kind of like, you know, if you think about what makes human beings so capable, it's cellular differentiation, right? Our cells divide and they differentiate. If not, we'd be like one giant tongue or something worse, right? We wouldn't be able to do much, but we have all these unique capabilities. And organizations really haven't practiced that. You know, there's a reason that at Google, the average team size is three to five people. And a lot of folks that I talk to today that think about this more deeply than I do will say, you know, somewhere between five and seven. And so I want an organization that's organized into relatively small teams, and then we can think about how do we aggregate those together. But these large uh, uh, kind of imperial divisions units, I think that's going, that ha we have to break those things down. I say a second problem, you know, particularly in large companies, is that you know, those companies ultimately get into trouble because they, they tend to overinvest in what is at the expense of what could be. And often, if you have a new idea in a big company, it's very hard to get even a bit of time and some resource to experiment with that idea. You have to go through so much bureaucracy and it's so conservative. And if you think about it, in, in most large companies, there's only one place you can go with a new idea, and that's up the chain of command. And if it doesn't fit your boss's prejudices or biases, the idea dies there. And if you want an analogy, imagine that in Silicon Valley we had a single venture capital company and that was, there was one place to go with a new idea. And of course, there'd be very little innovation. The average entrepreneur will try eight or nine you know, times to raise funding and you know, maybe they in the end do it or not. So one of, I think, the suggestions for large companies is 
you have to create a lot more places where people can get funding for ideas. So as example, uh, you know, let's take a you know, giant oil company. What if you said to everybody in that big oil company that has a discretionary budget of more than a few thousand pounds in a year, that every year they can take one or two or five percent of that budget and they can invest it in any idea anywhere across the company that they think has merit. So they really are playing the role of angel investor. If you did that to several thousand uh, people in a large company that have those budgets, now I have thousands of places to go for experimental funding instead of one. And we know that that's what works in Silicon Valley. That's why it's this hotbed of innovation. But yet in our companies, we still have a resource allocation process usually that we borrowed from, you know, uh, kind of uh, centrally planned economies. So these are fairly simple things that can be done that can make companies that are large and still want to exploit the benefits of scale feel to the ordinary employee like you're much more intimate, much more malleable, much smaller and easier to get things done in. So again, it's managing that paradox. Professor Hamill, thanks very much indeed. That was Professor Gary Hamill. And if you'd like to know more about Gary Hamill's work, then have a look at the show notes accompanying this podcast. The themes we've been discussing are also explored further on the Shaping the Future project pages of the CIPD website. You can find that at cipd.co.uk slash shapingthefuture. Next month, we'll be hearing from two employment law experts who will be answering your questions on employment law. Join me then. Goodbye. You've been listening to the CIPD podcast series.